Thanks for joining us for Life Community Church. If we haven't met yet, my name's Dan. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Life. Anybody go out to Soda Fest yesterday? Raise of hands. Yeah, about half of us. Great. That was my first Soda Fest. That was pretty exciting, like all those sodas out there. I'm a root beer lover. I love to try any root beer that I've never tasted before, so I got to try a bunch that were great. And my favorite was the one from Minnesota, and I can't remember its name, but it was delicious. Um, Something Creek or Stream or something. Uh, But yeah, that was great. Hey, we are in a series right now called Doubt, and we're finishing this series up. Um, So this will be the end of this series, Doubt, where we've just been looking at like, how do we have authentic faith and also deal with the questions that we have for God, these big questions that may come off as doubt or unbelieving, but that are okay to wrestle with, especially in church. Church should be the first place we go, the safest place we go to ask these hard questions. So that's what we've been doing. And today we're going to look at three big questions. So I'm calling this uh, message Big Questions, and we're going to look at three of them. These are three questions that I seem to hear pretty commonly, uh, whether it's people online or uh, my neighbors or uh, people I know just asking questions, even people who are in the faith community just asking questions, three big questions. For this whole series, I just want to remind you, we've been using two books. Um, One of them is Stay Curious by Stephanie Williams O'Brien. So that's called Stay Curious. If you want to read, learn more about this, dive deeper into what we've been talking about, go check out that book. And then we've also been looking at Faith and Doubt by John Ortberg. That's also another good one to check out. So if you want to read more about this, go check those out. You'll be reading it and you'll be like, whoa, Dan said this too. Like, wow, John Ortberg must be copying Dan. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, Let's start with this first big question. The first big question is why not more proof? Why not more proof? Why doesn't God just part the clouds, write his name over Soda Fest, and say, I'm God, worship me? Why didn't he give us more compelling proof? One of the most famous atheists in the last century was Bertrand Russell. And when he was 90 years old, he had this famous encounter with a woman at a party. And the woman said to him, Mr. Russell, you are not only the world's most famous atheist, you may be the world's oldest atheist, and you will die soon. (laughs) Pretty matter of fact, all right? Um, She said, what will you do if after you die, it turns out that God does exist? What will you do if you come face to face with this God that you've defied your whole life long? And Russell responded to her, And he said, I would point my finger at God and say, you, sir, gave us insufficient evidence. I kind of get what he's saying. Like, don't you wish that God would write his name or something over Soda Fest and just declare it all to everyone, right? Sometimes I want some more evidence myself. In contrast, uh, in the Bible, we read in Romans 1.20, it says this, For ever since the world was created, People have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. The Belgic Confession is a creed from the 16th century, a set of beliefs. Um, 
And, and this creed, it begins like this. This is how they start their creed. We know him, that's God, we know him by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe. Since that universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God, his eternal power and his divinity, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.20. That's the verse we just read. All these things are enough to convict men and to leave them without excuse. Second, he makes himself known to us more openly by his holy and divine word. As much as we need in this life for his glory and for the salvation of his own. So even in the middle of some pretty compelling evidence, if we just open our windows, look out our doors, take a road trip from the majestic mountains, even right down to the beautiful birth of a child, we still have this ability, and it seems like a natural ability, to just rationalize things away. To say, oh, that, that's just natural. It's not from God. If you don't want to believe, there's always room to not believe. You'll always find a way not to believe. Find a way around the evidence. A philosopher named Norwood Hansen said this, I'm not a stubborn guy. I would become a believer under some conditions. I'm open-minded. And then he lays out the conditions under which he would believe. Here they are. Suppose next Tuesday, just after breakfast, all of us in this world are knocked to our knees by an ear-shattering thunderclap. The sky is ablaze with an eerie silver light. And just then, as all the people of this world look up, the heavens open, the clouds part, revealing an unbelievably uh, an immense Zeus-like figure towering over us like a, a thousand Mount Everests. Then he points down at me and explains for every man, woman, and child to hear, be assured, Norwood Hansen, I do most certainly exist. You know, Hansen said that back in the 50s. And as I was reading that, I was like, well, I wonder what people today would say to that question. So, of course, I ventured onto the internet and I, I typed some things in to try and find like someone who had asked this question to the internet, see what people thought about it. And I found this question posted. It said, atheists of the internet, what would it take to change your mind? Pretty much the same question as Hanson here. What would it take to change your mind? This was on a site called Reddit. It's the 19th most popular site in the world, just uh, three spots behind Netflix, one spot behind uh, TikTok. And this question, atheists of the internet, what would it take to change your mind, had over 16,000 responses. That's like people that wrote out a comment afterwards. Tons more people saw it and identified with it. Here was the top answer, the one that so many people identified with. It rose to the top. It had 34,000 upvotes. It says, this is just some guy writing this on the internet. I don't know. I don't know what it would take. But I imagine an all-knowing, all-powerful God would know and could just make it happen if it wanted it to. And then another person responds. And they say, let me say that, first of all, I want to I be clear. These are thoughts that, like, maybe you're thinking here. Maybe um, you've thought these same responses. Or at least your neighbors are thinking them. Your coworkers, your family 
have these questions as well, might have these responses to the same questions. So think of it through the eyes of the people that are around you. The person responds to that, um, to the person just saying, he would make me believe. He says, if God showed up, came down on a flaming chariot, and made a duck start speaking perfect Spanish, I would be amazed. I would believe it. And I would study that duck to see how he pulled it off. So he's a believer. Duck speaks Spanish from a flaming chariot. Guy's a believer in God. A guy responds to that, or a woman, I don't know. Actually, I wouldn't. I'd assume I was hallucinating. And I've had hallucins not too far off from that. (laughs) I love that one. Uh, He says, it'd need to be verified by multiple people with qualifications for me to believe. Anything that I see, I I just don't trust. Particular things that are fanatical. Oh, fantastical. Um, Another person agrees with that. He's like, Yeah, it it may not even be God. We could be starting a new religion here because it could be a witch, a titan, a leprechaun, an alien, aliens working with leprechauns, a level 89 wizard, he says, an extra-dimensional traveler. It could be all of these things. Then a guy responds to the, the very first comment that a God could just make him believe. This guy says, I don't get this mindset. Oh, this is, this is in response to the duck, the, the flaming duck who speaks Spanish. He says, I don't get this mindset. It wouldn't, really take, it wouldn't really take much proof for me. Almost anything would make me believe. Send a prophet that could tell the future, cure sickness, cure amputees, prevent famine, solve droughts, take away suffering, have superhuman strength, whatever, anything. Just looking for something small. To us, we kind of hear that. We hear Jesus, don't we? Did you guys, did you guys hear that? Well, that doesn't work for him. Like He wants to see it right in front of his face, and he wants to see it consistently. And the person responds to this, this is the last one. I mean, there's 16,000 more, but this is the last one I'll read to you. Even if someone showed up who could do those things, it wouldn't be proof of a God to me. It would just be proof that this random person can do crazy stuff, and we need to figure out how. I don't know why those actions would prove to you that there is a God. They seem unrelated to me. Those are Hansen's conditions for his beliefs. We saw that. These are our internet friends and our neighbors' conditions for their belief. And they even, you know, debate with each other. And this is kind of an impossible question. Think about these things. Like these things that people said were their conditions for believing in God. Like God forces everyone to believe in him all of a sudden, all at once. The thunderclap from a Zeus-like figure for all the world to see. A flaming chariot with a duck speaking Spanish. A prophet that can cure sickness or just anything. As the writer puts it. If these things were to happen... Some of them, sure, they might make the news. They might make the front page of the paper. But then, you know, we'd probably just explain it away as like a mass hallucination, as an electrical discharge, as something we just don't understand. It wouldn't be proof of a God for people. If these people got everything that they asked for, we would find a way to dismiss it. You know, we've been doing that as humanity for a long, 
long time. We see this in Israel as the people in Israel would encounter God in these radical, crazy ways. I mean, God split the Red Sea, dry land. People walked through. They saw like the waves towering above their heads so they could walk through this dry land to get away from the Egyptians who were trying to bring them back. The waters close and just a couple weeks later, they forget about that whole scene and they build themselves a nice golden calf and they bow down to some pieces of gold. They forget about God. They explain it away. I wonder what their explanation for the Red Sea being parted. Maybe just some strong winds came through and blew it through and they got lucky. I can see myself doing that. I can see myself rationalizing it away. Could God do all that stuff that people want? Could God make a duck speak Spanish? Sure, he could. That'd be really cool. I'd be down to see that, God, if you want to do that. But he doesn't. And that brings us to a deeper issue. That the goal, that God's goal for the human race is not to just get people to admit that God exists. That's not his goal. His goal isn't just to have everyone say, God, you exist. That doesn't solve the problem of the human condition. That doesn't heal our broken hearts. It doesn't mend our society just to say, God, I believe in you. Imagine this. Imagine you're driving down the road on the highway, going down 74, and you see, and you're speeding, you know, you're going, what, what do you guys usually go, like 10 over? That's about where I am. Um, nine over, because somebody told me when I was in high school that if you go 10 over, they're going to give you a ticket, but nine over is safe. I don't know if that's true. Um, but you're going down the highway, and you see this cop car, and all of a sudden, your intention to obey the speed limit goes way up. You're like, oh, I, I'm going to obey the speed limit now, right? We all do that. What happened there? Have you suddenly had a heart change? Have you suddenly developed this oh, love for the speed limits? Oh, speed limits are so great. I just love them so much. No, of course not. If they pull the guy behind you over, you're going right back to 10 over, right? At least that's what I'm doing. All we're doing there is pain avoidance. It's not a change of our hearts. Awareness of God, like awareness of a police car, doesn't get us to friendship with God. People can believe in the existence of God and yet go on as uh, spiritual and moral disasters. We see that in today's world. We see the brokenness in that. Uh, James, he puts it like this, another writer in the Bible, you believe that there is one God. Good! Even the demons believe that and shudder. God's desire is not simply that we believe in him. That's not his complete vision. That's not his restorative vision for the world, that we just believe in God. It's part of it, for sure. But his mission and vision is that we embrace Christ's love and friendship, allowing Jesus to change and heal us and mend our world from the inside out, starting with us as people. Starting with our hearts, healing. Simply acknowledging that God exists doesn't solve the problem of our broken human hearts. God wants to renew our heart, each one of us. 
Ezekiel 36 says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. That's one of the verses that informs our mission here at Life Community Church. Our mission, or our vision, is that we are inviting people into the life-renewing presence of God. We want to be people, we want to be a church that are are inviting people into the life-renewing presence of God. We want people to experience his presence and experience his life-renewal. Jeremiah 29, 13. Remember that Jeremiah 29, 11, you guys probably know that verse. I have plans to prosper, that verse. This comes right after it. It says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. What does it mean to wholeheartedly seek God? It means that if I seek God above everything else, above all the important things in my life, like, more than money, more than my status, like Nate was talking about, more than my success. If I see God more than my safety, more than my security, then I will find God. The Bible promises that when we put those things to the side, you can still have safety and security and pursue those things, but when we put those things to the side and make our focus first and foremost God, that we will find Of course, God is so good that he comes to people who are searching half-heartedly for him. If there's any crack, even the slightest opening, God will come. In fact, he comes to those people that aren't even looking at all. You guys have probably heard those stories or are that story. You weren't even looking for God and he found you and you experienced his presence. But God's promise is this. If you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. That verse also comes after. When God is telling the people that they are about to go into exile, they're about to have huge hardships. Like they're leaving their homes. They're becoming slaves. And God says that. I have plans for your good. And if you seek me, you will find me. I think that's important for us to realize. God seems to present himself to us in such a way that people who want to dismiss God will be able to dismiss him. God seems to leave space for them. People who don't want there to be a God will find a way to believe that there isn't a God. Blaise Pascal said this, There's enough light for those who want to see and enough darkness for those of a different persuasion. So that's question one. Why not more proof? I don't claim to have the answers to any of these questions completely figured out. I don't claim to have answered this in a perfect way for you. But my hope for all of these questions, including this one, is that it builds a foundation for you to start building faith on. Question number two is this. Why not a better product? Why doesn't Christianity produce something better? Why aren't Christians better advertisements for Christianity? Has that ever troubled you? Like, there's some pretty questionable Christians out there, right? And you're like, oh, I wish they didn't call themselves Christians. Sam Harris, who wrote The End of Faith, he argued that Christianity and religion actually pose the greatest threat to the civilized, 
to, to civilization and human survival. And those who cite this objection, they'll point to crusades, the Inquisition, Salem witch trials, and so on. The Republican Party, maybe people will point that out. Um, they talk about how the Bible has been used historically to, def to defend slavery, to suppress women. Stephen Weinberg states it like this. Good people do good things. Bad people do bad things. But to get good people to do bad things, that takes religion. When I read that, it breaks my heart. I see where he's coming from, and I completely disagree. But I think that's the way a lot of society thinks these days. And we have to recognize that. We haven't always done a great job at representing who Jesus, is, who Jesus is and his heart for our world. I think the place to start here is to acknowledge that many horrible things have been done in the name of Christianity. Anyone who follows Christ openly and honestly and humbly, we have to look at these debacles in history without getting defensive and say, you know what? They were wrong. And then we can ask, once we admit that, it's okay to admit that, we can ask, were these events, these horrible atrocities, were they the outcomes of Jesus' teaching? The Jesus who said, love your enemies. The Jesus who said, pray for those who persecute you. The Jesus who said, when somebody hits you, turn the other cheek. The Jesus who said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do to the people that were torturing him and killing him. Would this Jesus have endorsed such atrocities against humanity? Augustine said that we should never judge a philosophy by its abuse. Would Jesus, who disapproved of Peter cutting off the guard's ear in Gethsemane, endorse the Crusades? Endorse any of those atrocities? No chance, no way would he ever come close to anything like that. You also have to consider the question, <clears throat> has the human race done better in societies where there is no Jesus, where there is no God, where we've eliminated faith altogether? Imagine uh, a, a society with no religion, no faith, no God. Under those conditions, do we think the problem of self-centeredness, hate, discrimination, murder, coveting each other's stuff, you think all that's just going to be solved with no God? I don't think so. The greatest atrocities in the history of the human race have been recorded in the 20th century. And they've all come from societies that have eliminated God, or at least tried to. So if I were to talk to Weinberg, the guy who wrote Good People uh, to get good people to do bad things, that takes religion, I might remind him that the worst atrocities ever known were carried out by the people who got rid of God in their society. Stalin, Mao Zedong. Evil and oppression exist not because of God, but because of the darkness that resides in the human heart. Beyond the objection that faith is terribly dangerous um, is the run-of-the-mill observation that Christians are hypocrites. That's in there too. My short response to that is absolutely Christians are hypocrites. I am a hypocrite. I'll be the first to stand up here and tell you I, do, I cannot practice everything that I preach up here. I'm very aware of it because I tell these things on Sunday 
I can't follow every one of them. I need grace. We all need grace. But God, he is in the process of restoring our broken hearts. When we give our lives to God, he renews our hearts. 2 Corinthians says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And then in Jeremiah 24, we read something similar. I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord. And they will be my people, and I will be their God. For they will return to me with their whole heart. All of humanity are hypocrites. It's part of our human nature. Christians, non-Christians, it doesn't matter. We love posing. (laughs) We love presenting an image that really isn't us. Social media is great at helping us do that. Uh, We have hypocrisy. We image management. If I get pulled over by a cop, you know, like, oh, I might, you know, drop my pastor card or something if I had one. I'd be like, oh, I'm a pastor. Maybe you shouldn't give me a ticket, you know? Like, I want to be a image, I want to control my image, use it for my gain, put certain spin on things so that we look good. But here's what Jesus promises when we turn to him, is that he will chip away at the sin and selfishness inside of us so that we can enter his rich, renewing friendship and presence. We can have relationship with him. God's plan was to create a community of people who actually build their lives on his presence and in his power through the Holy Spirit. We want to be a part of a presence that overwhelms us so much that we then become the good news because our hearts have been changed. Our lives have been changed. We become good news and barriers are broken down. We form a community of generosity and love and selflessness and kindness, like we see Jesus with his selfless service. The power of the local church is so much more powerful than we often realize. We, as the church, through the power of the Spirit, become a light to our surrounding community as we are people together. We as we we participate in Jesus' plan. Like, Jesus doesn't have this plan without us. It's with us, together. We get to be a part of that. To be the people that are restoring and healing a broken community. And we start with just our neighbors. Then we expand from there. So that's question two. Why not a better witness? We have the witness that Jesus has set up for us, and that is in the church to heal and restore. And that's what we are called to. And yes, we fail, don't we? We, we can't have it perfect, and we don't pretend to be perfect. When we make mistakes, we readily admit them. But as a church, we, Life Community Church, is going to be a church that brings light to our community. The third troubling question is why not end the pain? Why do we even have pain? Why does evil exist? If there really is an all-loving, all-powerful, all-good, competent God overseeing the universe, then why is there so much evil? Why is there suffering? Why do we have earthquakes and tsunamis and fires? Why do we have school shootings? Why do we have accidents like car crashes? Why do we have 
heart attacks and cancer and COVID-19? Why is there so much violence in the world? Why, is there, why are there unjust wars? This is the reality of our world. If our faith is going to mean anything, we have to look at this question. We have to talk about this. We can't just gloss over this one and not pretend like it exists and pretend like it doesn't exist. It does our faith community a disservice. It does the non-faith community a disservice. Um, Dostoevsky, who was a believer in God, he wrote that the death of a single infant calls into question the existence of God. I think it's okay to ask these big questions. We've all experienced pain on some level. We've all, uh, we've all seen pain all over the news. So why does this kind of pain and suffering and evil exist in our world? And I'll just tell you honestly, like my first thought, my initial reaction is just that I don't know. I don't have a comprehensive answer. I don't have a perfect answer. And I think it's okay for people that ask us these questions as Christians for you to say, you know, I don't know. We don't have a full answer to that question. I do know a couple of things, though, to be true. I do know some things that continue my faith and build my faith stronger than my doubts. And that's that God made human beings with a free will. You know, going back to that question on the internet, the first guy that answered, he's like, why, why doesn't God just make us all believe? If he could, he should. So we have free will. And free will inevitably includes the capacity to do evil things. And with that, to bring suffering on the lives of others. So I know we have free will. I know that there are two kingdoms at war. The Bible is clear that there is God's kingdom and there is Satan king, kingdom, Satan's kingdom. God's kingdom is building up and healing and restoring a broken world. And Satan's kingdom is tearing that down, causing more division, causing more blood, causing more hate. I know that in the end, God wins. And I know that every day his kingdom breaks into our lives. And we get to see him win these battles as we go throughout life, even when evil does exist. I know that we live in a fallen world. I know that us, we humans can cause that brokenness and we have sin. And I know that the message of the cross is that God loves us, that he gives his one and only son to die for us. Like John 3.16 says, I know 2 Corinthians says, He who knew no sin became sin for our sake, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. Jesus experienced suffering and pain and the guilt that we should have that you and I will never know on a whole nother level. Suffering never fully comprehended. And he did that on our behalf. John Ortberg, in, in this book, Faith and Doubt, he says this. It's a story. He says, One man whose son died climbing a mountain when he was 25 said that what he came to see was tears. A weeping God, suffering over my suffering, 
I had not realized that if God loves the world, God also suffers. I had thoughtlessly supposed God loved without suffering. I knew that divine love was the key, but I had not realized that the divine love that is the key is a suffering love. So while I, not be able, while I might not be able to explain perfectly why suffering goes on, I do know that God suffers with us. He is with us in our pain. Let me end with this story. A Cheryl went to a salon to have her nails manicured. It was a good conversation with many subjects. Eventually, they touched on God. And the beautician said, I don't really believe God exists. Cheryl asks, why do you say that? Well, you just have to go on the streets to realize God doesn't exist. If God exists, why sick people? Why abandoned children? Why pain? I can't imagine loving a God who could also allow all of these things. Cheryl thought for a moment but didn't respond. The beautician finished her job and Cheryl left the shop. And on the way out, Cheryl saw a woman on the sidewalk with, a long, with long, stringy, dirty hair. She looked filthy and unkept. And Cheryl turned around, entered the beauty shop again, and said to the beautician, You know what? Beauticians don't exist. What? asked the beautician. I'm here. I just worked on you. I exist. Cheryl said, No, beauticians do not exist because if they were here, there would be no people with dirty, long hair and appearing very unkept, like the woman outside. And the beautician said, Beauticians do exist. The problem is, People don't come to me. We have a responsibility as Christians to bring people to God. And how that can happen through a host of different ways. But we have that responsibility. And as we are people who are seeking God, we seek him with our whole hearts. And we will find him. We will experience his presence. I want to give you three calls to action today. Three things that can just help you in your walk. And as we've talked about these questions of doubt, I want you to notice, hopefully you've noticed, um, or maybe you didn't, that's fine, um, that we haven't told you to go out and read books on apologetics. And we haven't told you to like start writing a paper about your belief in your faith structure, whatever it may be. We've encouraged you to do things that will allow you to just experience God, maybe in a new way, maybe in a different way than you're used to. And I want to keep pushing you in that direction. If apologetics books appeal to you, yeah, go read them. They're awesome. They're great. They can inspire you for sure. But I think what God wants first and foremost is our hearts to be seeking after him. So here, here are the, the three. Three calls to actions. Tackle your doubts face on. Don't pretend they don't exist. You can write them down. Take them to God. Um, You can even start like a question or a doubt journal. And you could turn those into prayers and be like, you know what? I have this big question. Why, God, why do you let such pain happen? Turn that into a prayer. Spill your feelings on the paper. Start a doubt question journal be really beneficial, especially as you journey on and have uh, discover answers to those questions. When a friend, here's the second one, when a friend or neighbor shares their doubts, 
Maybe it's gonna, even going to be one of the three we looked at today. Those are really common. Have a conversation with them. Don't pull out your apologetics book and be like, oh, here's the answer right here. Instead, ask questions. Ask them, why do you, one of the best questions you can ask is, why do you ask? And usually they'll tell you a story, an experience. And it's your time to cry with those who cry, like Jesus does. Mourn with those who mourn. Acknowledge that there are unknowns. Be a good listener. Offer your ear, not an answer. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak instead of just using those default Christian answers. Sometimes people aren't ready to hear an answer. They're just on a journey and they need to be listened to. And you might be the first Christian that listens to them instead of just tells them off. And if they want more answers, they'll ask you. They'll come back, they'll ask, and you can give those. And third, seek after God. The way that you seek for something lost, like your keys, when they're lost, I mean, what do you do? You, you search the whole house, you tear apart, everything stops, you can't drive anywhere. Everything stops, you're just looking for those keys. Seek after God like that. And you can, you can do this in plenty of different ways. You can like set a timer just for 10 minutes. Every day, if that's where you need to start, start there. There's no guilt there. Set a timer, 10 minutes. I'm going to sit here. Um, I'm going to pray. I'm going to listen to God. Maybe Liz has recommended that we download the Lectio 365 app, which is so good. Helps us connect with God. That's usually about 10 minutes long. Check that out. But seek after God. Like, you, like put the things that usually take your time, whatever those things may be, put them to the side. Put God first and seek after God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. And we don't pretend to always understand you. But we've seen you enough to build our faith. We love you. We thank you for who you are in our lives. And for these questions that we still have, um, for people that are asking them that might feel guilt in asking them, I pray that you would release that guilt. We know you're a big God. We see a lot of huge, strong words in, in the Psalms directed at you. And you handle those. And so we know you can handle ours. And Jesus, we pray that um, as we seek after you with our minds and hearts, that you would just meet us. Show us your presence. We want to experience you in radical new ways. We love you so much. Amen. At Life Community Church, we want you to experience the powerful, life-changing love of God. To learn more, go to lifemohammed.org. lifemohammed.org.